Well, we are in the book of Ephesians, and if you're here with us last week, we did a read-through of that a short little letter, much as churches have done throughout history and time, even as the first letter of Paul, or when Paul first sent this letter to the church in Ephesians, they would have gathered together and read it to their church, so we did that last week. I hope that was a blessing to you. Today... We'll give an introduction before we dive into the uh, text of the, uh, the body of the text of Ephesians. But today, by way of verses 1 and 2, we'll, we'll open on an introduction to the book of Ephesians. And if you are new here with us, or you've been away for a while, forgot uh, kind of how we do things here at ICC, we do typically go through verse by verse through entire books of the Bible, preaching, uh, explaining uh, the words and sentences that make up the Word of God in each of these um, wonderful God-breathed books. So, let me read for you Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the same sword in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this isn't stated explicitly except in the title, and it's not like Paul titled this when he was writing it down to the Ephesians, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Uh, but we know by the context of it that this is what we would call a letter or in Greek, epistle. The word epistle is a Greek word, and the Greek word just means letter. So they're interchangeable, the word or term letter and epistle. And I, I, I wanted to explain, because I don't want to assume where everyone's at here this morning in terms of their theological understandings, that um, the Bible is made up of 66 books. When you think about it, uh, as you hold your, your Bible, this is a more like a library than it is, say, a single book, a library with 66 different kinds of, of books, and just like any other library, the Bible contains all sorts of different genres. Now, they all have one point, it's just a little bit different than the library, it's not like all of the books there are typically themed around a central subject, but the library that we call the Bible is centered on knowing God. But there are diverse genres in here, from history to poetry, personal letters and theological tomes, legal texts and biographies. One of the keys to understanding the Bible is to have at least a little background understanding of the genres of the particular text you're reading. For example, you interpret, say, the Constitution a little differently. You come into it with a little different background and understanding than a letter from your friend. You wouldn't try to look at those two the same way. The letter to the Ephesians is truly a letter, but we also see that Paul's intent wasn't only to write, say, personal comments in it. While there are some personal comments in many of his letters, and some letters are deeply personal, he is also a pastor and an apostle, and so when he writes these letters that are then contained in the Bible, it means that they are also given for our instruction and guidance because they are breathed by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Now, in the wisdom of God, Paul couldn't be everywhere at once as much as he might have liked to be, but empowered by the Holy Spirit, he wrote so many letters to the churches to encourage their faith, and that's what we have 
here in the New Testament, much of the New Testament are composed of these letters of Paul to these churches. And just as a side note, when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't write chapter divisions and verses next to, to each sentence in line. As you see in your Bibles, those were added much, much later. Um, I mean, I don't know if many of you do that in your emails, chapter one, chapter two. Um, <laughs> someone mentioned, uh, I think Gail mentioned yesterday that I kind of wrote this whole tome to her in response to a question, um, but I didn't put chapter division in the response. You're gonna need this later um, <laughs> to make it easier to navigate. That was all added later so that we could find passages quickly. Um, but at the time, actually, the style in the original Greek was to write in all capital letters with no spaces in between the letters or the words and not even paragraph separation. So you do have to understand a little bit when you see paragraph breakdowns, when you see chapter or section headings, when you see verses and chapter numbers, in a way, there's a little bit of interpretation involved in it, um, but very, very wise and scholarly uh, men and women uh, have done a great work in, in presenting it to us in a readable way. But just imagine if all of this was in all caps, every letter and words just running on, you know, through each other. That would be a picture of what the original letter uh, was like. Now, in any typical letter of that time, you would say who you are and who you're writing to at the beginning of the letter. So you have Paul introducing himself and then he's saying to the saints. When you think about it, in a, in a typical letter that you write, you write, dear so-and-so, and at the end, you say, you know, respectfully yours, and then you write your name. Now, you usually get the letter in, in an envelope, but it's kind of weird, actually, that if you only have the letter, you might not know who sent it, until you read the end of it, or if it was on some kind of letterhead. Well, it makes a lot of sense to me that you start your letter with, hey, it's me, and I'm writing to you. And that's exactly what we see uh, in many of the letters of the time. So I, personally, I think that's a great way to do it. So, who is this letter from? It is from the Apostle Paul. Well, who is Paul? Paul was one of the most prolific authors of the New Testament, and this dynamic church planter who traveled the entire region of the time planting churches based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he wasn't always Paul the church planter. Prior to being an apostle, Paul was actually a church hater, a Christian persecutor. He prided himself on his strict adherence to Jewish law, and he viewed this new cult that was being peddled by Galilean fishermen as a threat, a blasphemous affront to God. And so he committed his life to hunting down these Christians and sectarians and either get them imprisoned or take away their property or even executed. That's who Paul was prior to his encounter with Jesus Christ. How did Paul become now an apostle? Uh, the term apostle simply means sent one. How did he become an ambassador now for Jesus Christ? How did he become someone specially commissioned by the Lord for this preeminent and important fundamental task of establishing churches of which, in a way, we are the inheritors, we are descendants of? How did he become the apostle 
Paul. Acts 9 tells a story. I'm just going to sum it up. Paul encountered the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, while on the road to Damascus as he was hunting down more Christians. And when he encountered Jesus Christ, his life was immediately turned upside down. It's ironic because Jesus blinded Paul's eyes on the road to Damascus, his physical eyes. But at the same time, he opened Paul's spiritual eyes. And Paul realized that he had been so, so wrong about Jesus, so, so wrong about the scriptures, and so, so wrong about the Christians that he was persecuting. Now, Paul thought he was defending the honor of the scriptures from these Jesus worshipers, but really, what was revealed, and you see this in Paul's writings later, he was puffing up his own pride and ego. That he was merely using the Bible as a weapon against others. He was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were always condemned by Jesus for being those who would take the pure and perfect Word of God and use it to lay burdens on others, oftentimes to prop up their own prominence, their own status. And, and, and Paul was one of these Pharisee of Pharisees, Jew of Jews. And unfortunately, of course, propping up pride and ego and using the Bible as a weapon is something that pastors and Christians still do today. That is who Paul was. And because of his arrogance, he thought that the message of Jesus was contradictory to the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. But seeing Christ on that road, he finally understood that the Scriptures were pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of God's plans. That Jesus was not a threat to God's plans, but the very point of all that is written in the Law, the Prophets, the Psalms. Like many of us, Paul thought he could earn a place with God if he just did all the right things, which also seemed to include killing Christians. The core message of the Bible is that no one is perfect. No one can please God with good works. It's like trying to please a master chef with a mud pie. It's like going, <laughs> trying to impress your geology professor with one of those baking soda volcanoes. I have a deep mastery of this. Let me show you. It's not even how volcanoes work. If you, I, I, I was, not to get too much of that, but that's not how volcanoes work. So why do we use baking soda as some example? It, 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 if, if that is laughable, if that is folly or foolishness, so much more so, the idea that we can please a holy and perfect God by offering good works. Well, I, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't swear today. Well, I haven't murdered anyone today. Well, I saw someone um, that was lying in a ditch, and, and I helped them out. I helped you know, this old lady cross the street, and I donated to a local charity. Come on, isn't that enough? And yet it would be like trying to bribe a judge to overlook a crime, saying, well, I know I committed murder or grand theft auto or some other felony, but listen, I do a lot of volunteer hours at the shelter. You should let me off for the wrongs I've committed. Well, good that you volunteer at a shelter, but that doesn't mean that you get to commit crimes. That's exactly how it was and is so often with us that we think that we can, by our good works, earn God's forgiveness. No. God had too clearly communicated 
through the prophets and through the failures of the Israelites over and over again, through the sin sacrifice system where, you know, you screw up, you have to shed the blood of this animal. And all of that, it was pointing to our need for an ultimate sacrifice. And a perfect man who alone could make us right with God by substituting his righteousness for our unrighteousness, his holiness for our unholiness. Only in the God-man Jesus is there forgiveness, ultimate forgiveness of sin. So God's purpose and plan had always been to expose our pride and ego and an inability to please God so that when God offered freely the forgiveness of sins by the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus Christ, God would be glorified. God would get the glorified glory, not me for being such a good guy. When Paul finally saw what was right there in front of him and had always been in front of him in the word of God and in the person and testimony of Jesus Christ, he repented and he believed. And you can read all about that in Acts chapter 9. And at that moment, Jesus called him to be an apostle. What has happened to you, Paul, I intend to happen to people all over the world. And you, Paul, are going to suffer many things in order to accomplish this purpose of mine. And in that moment, he became a sent one to, pro to proclaim the good news to the world, to Jews and Gentiles that is non-Jews alike. And on one of these journeys, to share the gospel, to plant churches, communities based on Jesus Christ and his forgiveness of sins through his blood, he came to a city called Ephesus. Now, we know a little bit about the author of this letter. Let's consider who are the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, that word saints uh, can conjure up different uh, ideas in your head. Ask you, well, what, what is a saint? If you have any kind of Orthodox or Catholic background, uh, you would probably have in your mind the, the icons and images of, of, of you know, dead Christians from long ago who we seem to venerate and give some special status to. Uh, in fact, to officially be a saint in, say, the Catholic Church, you have to have led a very extraordinary life, as you might imagine. But you also have to do miracles after your death, meaning that there has to be miracles attributed to you after you die. And then you can become a saint. Well, Paul does not have anything like that in mind when he uses the term saints here. It was a frequent label that he gave to just regular old people who believed in Jesus. The term saints is not set aside for only the special elite, super holy you know, ninja squad of Christians. No. All Christians, whether young or old, seasoned in the faith, or just starting out their walk, were considered believers. Saints to Paul. And Paul had a pretty high standard. And yet he would still even call those in the city of Corinth saints. Although they were wrestling with all kinds of wickedness and sin, he still called them saints. So saint does not mean 
And the word Christian does not mean perfect person. Faithful doesn't mean without flaw. Or else Paul wouldn't have written a letter to correct and encourage and challenge believers. If he thought that the people there were already perfect, why would he need to spill so much ink in telling them what to think, what to believe, how to act, how to honor the Lord? So he could not possibly have thought that St. Nate meant some perfect person. In just the same way, guess what? All of you here are saints too, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, the same way Paul did, the same way these believers in Ephesus did. There's no special status here. And that's also a hint to that when Paul adds the second part. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. What defines the life of a saint isn't that you walk on water, <laughs> or that everywhere you go, a chorus of angels just pops out and starts singing the glories of God and how wonderful you are. <laughs> no, that's not what the life of a saint is like. The life of a saint is characterized by faithfulness. And faith in the Bible, Bible, it doesn't mean like a vague hopefulness that things will kind of turn out okay, and so I have faith, I, you know, I have faith in the sense that, yeah, I think this is going to turn out, I hope it does anyway. No, nor is faith blind, as it's described in the Bible, that is without any reason or substance, I just have no reason to think this way, but I just believe it's going to be a certain way. When the Bible talks about faith, it means a confidence that although you may not see the outcome, you know that it is sure. Because God keeps his promises. It's like, I know, certainly, that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. Unless, I mean, Jesus comes and destroys everything all at once, which he's not going to do. I know, certainly, that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. Well, how can I say that? I mean, do I need to know the future? <laughs> well, I've, it's happened so many times before. It is a sure thing for tomorrow, but I've not seen it. In the same way, God keeping his promises is something you can point to say, look, he's kept all his promises in the past. He's surely going to do it in the future. Even though I don't see it, I know that it is coming just as sure as I know the sun is going to rise. That is faithfulness. Faith means that life gets hard, that you keep screwing things up. I keep screwing things up. I have to apologize and cut deals with a bunch of <laughs> elementary school kids. <laughs> Circumstances don't quite go the way that you want. You, know, you lose pictures and freak out. You still. <laughs> faith means that you still seek to trust God. That, that He lets nothing happen to us that will not serve a greater purpose and good. And because of that truth, which is as certain as the sun rising tomorrow, I can live and bank on the fact that the sun's going to rise tomorrow. And if I can believe and trust that, then I can believe and trust that God is going to be faithful tomorrow. Faithful even in the next minute and second. And because of that, we can listen and obey the Lord. Because of that, I can keep putting one foot in front of the other, knowing that each step draws me closer to the Lord. So Paul writes this letter to believers whom he trusts will care that he has written this letter. And they will take it seriously enough to 
conform their thinking and their actions to what he writes because they know that in Paul's letter contain truths and promises that are steady and sure, even in the midst of the most violent storms of life. That is faithfulness. That is what a saint is. It's not that your life is super easy or that you're expected to do supernatural feats. It is simply that you will continue to trust the Lord. Whether life is easy or hard, because he is going to keep his promises. Now, of course, Paul is addressing a very specific group of believers. In other words, those who have assembled together in the city of Ephesus. Now, back then, churches gathered in homes and was essentially regionally based. Meaning, there was a church in Ephesus, there's a church in Rome, there's a church in Thessalonica. We don't exactly know the exact composition of those churches. We know that they uh, had uh, pastors that were uh, in charge of them, but you know, could a house accommodate, say, a thousand people in it? Um, did they just gather in, in, in fields and open places? Did they gather in homes um, and, and, and smaller groups? Likely all of the above. That however they could meet, they would meet. And they were organized around uh, the teaching of God's Word and these pastors who were faithfully uh, installed as shepherds over them uh, as sheep. Now the church of Ephesus becomes one of the most significant churches in the New Testament. Not only does a lot of action happen there, so to speak, but um, they, they have Paul stay there, and we'll see it um, in the weeks to come, I, I think, or talk about it more. I'll touch on it briefly today. But Paul will end up staying, uh, staying there for a couple of years, so it's a long time for Paul to invest in this in this church. Um, they also end up being pastored by Timothy, who is Paul's beloved uh, son in the faith and his foremost disciple and protege. Later in life, actually, the apostle John, who is going to be the last surviving disciple of Jesus, he becomes a pastor there as well. And the church in Ephesus is actually one of those few churches that I didn't think about, well, the church in Corinth got a couple letters, but uh, the church in Ephesus actually receives a, another letter, but this time from Jesus Christ himself, which we talked about when we are going through Revelation and the seven churches and the seven letters to the churches um, there in Revelation 2 and 3. So Ephesus is a very special, uniquely oriented church. Now, turn to Acts chapter 18. Keep a finger there. If you have a Bible that has maps in it, um, also, keep, so keep a finger there, or put a bookmark there. In fact, that's what I'm going to do here. <laughs> and then if you have a map in your Bible, turn all the way to the back of your map. If you don't have a, a, a Bible with a map in the back, you're going to need to lean over to someone who does. <laughs> I don't want to encourage you to Google it, but to be honest, when I was preparing this, I did Google it because I didn't have my Bible right next to me at the time. So. If you want to do that, go ahead. <laughs> so if you want to look at the map, look at the map. If you want to look at Acts 18, look at Acts 18. I'm going to describe a little bit of what's going on in Acts 18 anyway. But turn, to, turn your map and find the map of Paul's first, or uh, Paul's second missionary journey. And, and look at the route of that journey. <laughs> As a kid, the only reason I looked at these map pages was I was getting bored in sermons. 
But uh, as I got older, I realized, no, these are really helpful. <laughs> really helpful. So, Paul actually visited uh, this church very briefly on a second missionary journey. Um, if you look at the map, and on mine at least, you have uh, Cyprus kind of in the bottom right uh, of the map in the middle of the ocean. It's kind of the easy landmark. Well, if you go north, that's up, and then west, that's left, uh, you should come across Ephesus. You see it there? And if you notice, Ephesus is very close to the ocean, and that's one of the things that made it kind of a prominent hub, because, of course, you'd have uh, oceans, and, or I'm sorry, um, ships and commerce come into Ephesus, and in Ephesus, actually, you have a lot of tradesmen, uh, you have a lot of craftsmen, and that's going to figure in, into this riot in Acts 19, which we won't really get into today. Um, but uh, Ephesus had a lot of craftsmen tradesmen in it, so they would take all these goods that were coming in from the region. You had all these craftsmen tradesmen, they would, they would take the metal, the leather, and, and craft things out of it, and then they would send it out into the rest of what would be modern-day Turkey now. Um, and uh, it was a very prosperous city because of that connection, both with the creative craftsmen there and having this port uh, right there. So Ephesus is a very important city. It's very metropolitan. Um, and uh, they, they, they boasted about their city. They also had this gigantic temple to this goddess Artemis. Um, that will figure in, again, in Acts 19 as well. But they had a lot of pride in their city. They had a lot of pride in their goddess. And they had a lot of pride in their temple. Now, if you shoot west from Ephesus, almost directly west, you'll see Athens across the Aegean Sea there. And then right by Athens, a city called Sencre. C-E-N-C-H-E-R. Or C-H-R-E-A-E. And that's sort of their to the northwest of Athens. It is this city, actually, that, that Paul was in before he went to Ephesus. Initially, Paul came to Ephesus with a husband-wife team that he met in Corinth, which is near Sancreate. Priscilla and Aquila are going to be very notable figures in Paul's life. Um, Priscilla is the wife, uh, Aquila is the husband, and most commentators say that since her name usually comes first in most of the listings, including Paul's own listing of the couple, that Priscilla maybe had the more prominence, uh, either by, say, social status, um, or perhaps, the, you know, perhaps, you know, the guess, because they don't really know for sure, but maybe Aquila was a, was a slave who became a free man, or maybe just Priscilla uh, had, um, you know, was more the, the business savvy, uh, one of the two, because we'll see that uh, they were um, sort of entrepreneurs. But in any case, Priscilla and Aquila uh, link up with Paul there in Corinth. And the reason that Priscilla and Aquila were in Corinth is because they got kicked out of Italy, which in my map is even more to the north and to the west. Um, if you remember, the Roman Empire was sort of the kingdom that was in charge, and uh, Rome was the seat of power, of course. And there had been riots that were started by Jews uh, throughout Italy and Rome. And so um, in about 49 50 AD, 49 through 50 AD, uh, the emperor at the time started kicking Jews out of Rome because of this. 
And so um, in Acts 18, it talks about how um, Priscilla and Aquila were kind of kicked out of, of Italy and were perhaps making their way back to their hometown of Pontus, which is northern Turkey, um, or modern-day Turkey. And so they link up with Paul in Corinth, perhaps on their way back, or perhaps they're just rebooting their business. Well, what do they do? They were tent makers, like, like Paul. And so actually for a time in Corinth, they started working together as tent makers, and that would probably include some leather working. Now, they were followers of Jesus, and the three of them actually end up traveling together. There's, there's no real details given, uh, but Paul goes from Corinth to Sancreate, and from Sancreate to Ephesus. And so Priscilla and Aquila are there with them. They come, become very close companions to Paul, and Paul has, men, mentions them frequently in his letters, and he puts them right up there with Timothy. So they become very near to his heart. Now what's interesting, Acts 18 tells us that Priscilla and Aquila are left in Ephesus. And it's not exactly clear why they stayed there. Whether it was they had their own plans, I know this would be a great place to kind of reboot our business, uh, because Ephesus is, just a, is a great opportunity. And so Paul said, okay, do you guys stay here? I, I, he had made a vow in a Sancreate, which uh, could only be fulfilled by going to Jerusalem. So he stops in Ephesus, and he's there just a short while. His, um, his tactic was to go to Jewish synagogues and preach there, and so he did that. They wanted him to stay. Paul, he loves us. Please tell us more. But <laughs> he had this vow that he had made, and he needed to go to Jerusalem. And so perhaps he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there to kind of fill in for him, because we find, come to find out that, that uh, Priscilla and Aquila are very astute, zealous believers. So, <laughs> what's interesting is that when he leaves them, he says, I will return to you if God wills. Now, it seems sort of non-committal to me, because Paul is usually very eager to, to plant churches and to preach. And it, it sounds almost like, well, I don't know if I'm be coming back this way again, um, so we'll see. <laughs> what happens, kind of the answer that I give uh, to people, hey, let's go and uh, let, let's, let's meet up for lunch sometime. Yeah, 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 let's, let's plan that sometime. <laughs> if I have ever done that to you, I apologize. <laughs> if I've ever done that to you, please, let's have lunch. Um, I'm sorry if I forgot you, truly. Uh, but it kind of sounds like that, all right? Uh, yeah, I've got wills, uh, I'll return to you. So for whatever, you know, well, he had to finish up this vow, but he didn't have a strong sense of urgency, it seemed like, uh, to go back there. That's just my take on it. Now, whether officially or, or unofficially, Priscilla and Aquila, and Priscilla is actually a... Um, like, a, like a, a nickname. It's funny because the formal name is Prisca, but the like um, diminutive form is Priscilla. To me, it seems the opposite. Like if I was going to nickname Priscilla, I'd make it Prisca. But, um, so this is actually kind of like an informal name, Priscilla. <laughs> so it's like a name that you use with your friend, let's say. Um, they kind of become the seed of the church nemesis then. It's kind of like the seeds of this church were planted by missionaries of the American Sunday School Union. That the, the men whose names we don't even know, and I've tried to find them, were the, the ones who were here gathering the ranch hands of Mr. Irvine to come together, hear the preaching of God's word, and, and become uh, like, like a church. 
Now, they are nameless. Here we know Priscilla and Aquila's name. Uh, but they certainly begin to minister there in that uh, community. But it's a vast city. And we're going to see uh, in what's being read in Acts chapter uh, 19. There's only 12 believers that, that are there that Paul finds. And they don't even have the Holy Spirit yet. So I don't think that's saying that Priscilla and Aquila had no impact. Uh, but more to say that the city was so big and they're just one couple there uh, that... You know, it's not like they had started a church per se, but they were just planting seeds. Now, I think that for as significant a church that this Ephesian church ended up being, this has a very humble beginning. I mean, it's really just a stop on the way home for Paul. He wasn't really trying to, to do anything there. It almost seemed like somewhat of an inconvenience in his desire to get to Jerusalem and fulfill his vow that he had made. But I like the idea that maybe it had an inauspicious beginning. It's like our church. It's not as if um, there was a lot of fanfare in 1932 when this church was established. Um, you know, there's really no one to make a big fanfare about it. That, again, nameless men who we will only know when we get to heaven. We start to see the connections and stories and hear the tales of uh, men and women and their influence, then we will know their names. We don't know their names of the missionaries that the, the American Sunday School, unless we do know their names. I, I, don't, I don't think we know them. So, um, <coughs> but faithful, faithful men when who wanted to see the gospel preached came and started this church. And also <laughs> faithful men and women who were there at the beginning of the church in Acts 19 of, in Ephesus, whose names we don't even get, they were the part. The, 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 the seminal root of this church in Ephesus. I, just, I, I think that's a connection we're making, that you can be a very humble church and very important. You can uh, have been started by very simple means and still be significant. Lastly, when it comes to the major themes of Ephesus, and here we'll start to uh, close out, <clears throat> When it comes to the themes of Ephesus, really I just want to hit on one. There's, there's lots of ways to cut this up, but if, I noticed this when I was reading it last week, but there's a, a phrase that kept coming up over and over again throughout the book of Ephesians, and it was this, in Him, or in Jesus. If you're an auditory person, like, you just can't help but hear that resound over and over and over again. I noticed it, and when I counted, it's like two dozen or so times in a short letter that Paul uses that phrase, in him or in Jesus. What does that tell us? What does that phrase even mean? Well, I'm just going to give three examples of, of what it means. To say in him means that the cause or the reason is Christ. The cause or the reason for, for, for our spiritual lives, for our faith, is Christ. Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. That is to say, because of our union with Christ, with Jesus the Son of God, because as Christians we are united with Him, in union with Him, we will likewise obtain an inheritance as children of God also. That just as Jesus is a son, and if a son, then an inheritor, so we will too, in him, have an inheritance because of 
Christ. The reason is Christ. That's one way that in Him is used. Another way that in Him is used is as the goal or purpose that has been planned and pursued by Christ. Ephesians 2.22 says, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is to say, because of what Christ wants to have done, in Him is this driving goal and purpose. That as we become more in Him, we actually serve this goal of being built together as a structure, as a building, as a cohesive uh, oneness of believers that is fit for the Holy Spirit, for God Himself to dwell in. And so there is a, a goal and purpose. In Him, we're talking about this purpose that we are driving towards, that our unity is something that has a meaning. Our union with Christ also results, also has this goal of making us united amongst each other. To say in Him also means that Jesus is the source. That out of Him, that inside of Him is something, and that is where something else comes out of. Ephesians 4.21 says that assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. So you have in Him and in Jesus. What is in Him? What is in Jesus? Truth. He's the source of truth. And so if, if, if truth is in Him, then what do you get out of Him? What do you get from Him? Truth. The, the way people right now view Google or Wikipedia as a source of truth, well, Jesus is actually the source of truth with a capital T. And so when we say in Him, we mean in Him as the source of everything we need for life and for godliness. In short, Paul very much believes by saying in Him, in Him, in Him, that if you have Christ and you are in Him, meaning that you're united with Him through faith, you have everything that you need. Period. Not just everything you need to be a good Christian. Everything you need to be a wife or a father or a good neighbor. No. In Christ, you have everything. You have the reason. You have the goal, the purpose. You have the source. In Him is everything that you need. And the higher and deeper and wider your view of God and what He has done through Christ, the more you'll be able to take whatever life throws at you and not only just get through it, but glorify God in the midst of it if you are in Him. So the whole book of Ephesians is intended to equip us this way, to give us the Theology, to give us the actions that match the theology, to point us always to Jesus Christ. So, a few different introductions, really, in terms of how to understand the book of Ephesians, the, the genre and nature of it, um, the, the uh, beginning and even the geography of the church and those who started it and some of the major themes. So I hope that this sort of whets your appetite for the rest of the book of Ephesians, because I think it will be wonderful in encouraging us to continue to be faithful 
for another 90 years of ministry. And so that is some of the goal, is to remind us of these things that were central and true for Ephesus and are central and true for Irvine Community Church. Heavenly Father, thank you. For your word, which gives us all things we need pertaining to life and godliness because it reveals to us the person, nature, work of Jesus Christ. And in him, fullness of deity dwells. So when we behold Christ in your word, we are glimpsing into your face. And that, that changes us, that transforms us, that stretches us, that defines us. So I pray, Lord, that you would use this book, you'd use your word, and especially this letter to the Ephesians, to conform us to that glorious image of Christ so that we can be found faithful. Thank you for each one here. We pray, Lord, your blessing on the rest of our day today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.